0: You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. This week's message is preached by Pastor Scott McGrady. If you take your Bibles at this time... Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 21. We had some issue with the PowerPoint, so any quotes or cross-references I'm not going to have up there right now. Uh, But, nonetheless, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 to 21. And as you turn there, I want to think about the fact that we, we live in a world that does not value the truth of God's Word. Matter of fact, We live in a world that hates the truth of God's Word. We live in a world that hates the teachings of Scripture. Uh, There may be a multitude that that, uh, love when Scripture is used, uh, but only when it's used in parts. The parts we like. uh, The parts that make us feel good. And and very often in those parts even that make us feel good, the parts we like are, are more often not taken out of context. Those parts of that are interpreted by reading into the text what we want it to say instead of taking out of the text what the author intended to say. Which, by the way, saying that, I want to put another shameless plug in for Wednesday night as we learn how to study the Bible for ourselves. Um, and so I want to encourage you to come out to that. But again, as we, we think about this, when we, we truly study God's Word to take out the original intended meaning, and then therefore we learn God's Word, and then can apply God's word, and allow God's word to shape our lives, and shape our church, all the while recognizing that our lives and our church are not really ours. We ourselves belong to God. This church belongs to God. And when we take such a position, we do not make friends with the world. But really, the Bible tells us that to make friends with the world is to be at enmity with God. But there's always that temptation to be friends with the world. And so there's always that temptation to compromise. But in the midst of that temptation, we must all the more hold fast to knowing and obeying God's word. We must submit to God's word. And when we do so, we will stay the course to be the church that God calls us to be, and to be people who are growing in Christ's likeness J.C. Ryle, in the book, Warnings to the Church, he said this, The word exp- expanded and unfolded. The word explained and opened up. The word made clear to the head and applied to the heart. The word is the chosen weapon by which the devil must be confronted and confounded. The word was the sword which the Lord Jesus wielded in the temptation. To every assault of the tempter, he replied, It is written. The word is the sword which his ministers must use in the present day if they would successfully resist the devil. The Bible, faithfully and freely expounded, is the safeguard of Christ's church. And absolutely it is. To wander from the word... To appease the world and draw others in is not an option. We want to look for people to come, for sure, don't get me wrong. But we need to be faithful to God's word and trust him for the fruit that he bears through that. To wander from the word is to be led into great danger for both our personal lives and, and for the church itself we must stand on the truth of god's word and as we see what god's word calls us to conform to that last week we saw after paul had been giving instructions on certain ones certain groups within the church uh, we saw him then turn his attention back to the idea of the false teachers within the church and then he he turned his attention to timothy And called Timothy to to live in contrast, to teach in contrast, to be in contrast to the false teachers. And so therefore to faithfully discharge the things that Paul had commanded him. We saw Paul command Timothy to flee from all that marked the false teachers. And to instead pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness and gentleness. And he commanded Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith to take hold of eternal life. And we discuss then, as Timothy was to keep this body of commandments, these commandments really bore the weight of the entire letter. And so Timothy was to do this, and and to understand in doing this, he was accountable before God the Father and Christ Jesus. And now as we come to the close of 1 Timothy, we see Paul turns his attention to one more group within the church to which he felt necessary to give instructions for. And speaking of that, we've been seeing, going through 1 Timothy the past few weeks, God's call on our lives, through his word, on how we should think and what our attitude should be towards possessions and wealth. And that we are to be content with what we have. And so now, as Paul turns his attention to the rich within the church... He speaks a word to them on how they should think and their attitude should be towards their wealth, and therefore what kind of people should they be? What are the things they should be doing as the rich within the church? And then again, we see Paul turn his attention one last time back to Timothy, to call Timothy to continue the work he was called there to do in Ephesus, to defend the faith, to guard the truth, and to keep from that which was of the false teachers. So again, my friends, as we see these things, and we've been going over what our attitude and view should be of wealth and possessions, and as he addresses here the rich that were in the church, again, we need to be thinking, what does the scriptures call me to in my life? How has my life to be conformed to what God's will is as he is revealed in his word? And what my attitudes are, and even how I use my possessions. And again, too, we as a church... How are we conforming more and more to God's Word, lifting up God's Word, being faithful to God's Word, guarding the deposit that was entrusted to us? As we think about these things, let's see what God's Word says and, and again be seeking to be obedient to it. Read with me, if you would, as we look here at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17-21. through 21. As for the rich in this present age... Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. Now, if you remember, when we discussed uh, the greed of the false teachers, as Paul went over that, and, and we saw that Paul said, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil we discuss how having money, having wealth, in of itself is not evil, is not wrong. The problem is not having money. The problem is the love of money. Or, or as one other person once said, the problem is not having money, but it's money having you. Again, so wealth in of itself is not wrong, not evil. It, it can really be a good thing. And God determines to give certain ones wealth in this life for his purposes. And the believer with wealth should then realize that they should use their wealth for God's glory. And we see that very thing as we look at our passage this morning. Notice, Paul does not chasten the or chastise the wealthy for their wealth. But instead, he instructs them concerning the attitude and where their hope is placed in light of the fact that they are wealthy. We see verse 17 begins by referring to those who are rich in this present age. As opposed to every believer, all of God's elect, who have riches for the age to come. He's addressing those who are rich in this present age, which may not be every believer, Uh, as he's referring to those who have material wealth in this world, in this life. And so Paul charges, he commands Timothy to command these who are rich in the church to not be haughty, or you could say prideful. It's easy that if we have a lot to become prideful. Uh, We can be indated with worldly thinking and having the attitude that because we possess more, somehow we're we're worth more. Uh, We may not say that, that, but if we carry ourselves with such an attitude, uh, we may say it in our actions and and in our, our words in many different ways. We have to understand that just because you have more than someone else does not mean that you are better than them. Also, If we have more than someone else, that doesn't mean that we are more spiritual or have a better relationship with God because of our wealth. The wealth doesn't speak to that, although that really is the message of the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel, where if you have more material possessions, it's because you are more spiritual. If you have more wealth, it's because you have a greater faith. Or if you have more material possessions, it's it's because of of God's blessing on you who are more obedient to him. That is the essence of the prosperity gospel, but that is not the teaching of the Bible. Your material possessions speak nothing to your intrinsic value as a person, nor does it speak to your spiritual condition. There are many ways in which someone may be tempted to have an inflated view of themselves due to wealth, But we have to understand God in his providence, in his sovereignty, has chosen to give some more and some others less for his purposes. And we have to understand what wealth really is. We have to understand the nature of wealth, that we would not put our hope in wealth. Because to put our hope in riches is to put our hope in what is very uncertain. Uncertain. How can we have confidence in something that is so unworthy of our confidence? I mean, just think about it. How many people have worked so hard to gain material possessions and wealth, and no sooner did they gain it, they lost it? Or what about what we saw when we were going through Ecclesiastes? That once wealth is obtained, once these material possessions are obtained, they they don't meet, they don't meet up to the promises they made they don't satisfy as we thought they would. We actually find them to be empty. And then what more? Not only do we find them to be empty once we've grasped them, but soon we die, and and then we we don't have them anymore, and they they go to someone who didn't work for them. We read in Proverbs 11, verse 28, says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It's not the righteous, it's the fool who puts his hope in what is so uncertain. Instead, we are to put our hope in God. God who is so glorious and satisfying in of himself. God who never changes, who alone has immortality, who is so worthy of us putting our hope in him than to put our hope into anything else really amounts to idolatry because we are giving that something else the place that God alone should have in our lives. We must trust in God's provision for our lives, not the supposed security that comes with money and possessions. Now, many of us might be tempted to say, well, you know, uh, to to be tempted to to put my hope in wealth really is not a, a thing for me because to put your hope in wealth, you have to you have to have wealth, right? <laughs> so, so that's I'm good. All right? We might be tempted to say that but we have to understand the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart if we are discontented with what we have we're unsatisfied even with our basic needs met for our, our heart then lies more with riches that we don't even have more than we're willing to admit Trusting in what we might have to satisfy us, to thinking, you know, if I just had this, I'd be secure, I'd be happy with life. that, That speaks a lot to where our hearts really are, and what we're really hoping in. Also, if we're thinking, according to the American standard of wealth, that we are not wealthy, we're not rich, we may have to adjust our thinking of what it means to really be rich. Because if we have more than we need, then we are rich. If we have some extra money to put towards doing something for entertainment or leisure, then the truth of the matter is we are actually rich. And whether we are rich or not, we have to understand that we should be content with what we have. We should be content as we serve God, who is the one who providentially gives us all that we have. So instead of putting our hope in riches, instead of putting our hope in what's so uncertain, we have to put our hope in God. God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. God is the one, again, who provides us with everything we have, no matter what it is, no matter how much or how little it is. We have to recognize, if whatever I have, if my needs are met, it's by God's grace. And if I I have my needs met and beyond that, it's by God's grace. It's only by his grace that we have anything. Matter of fact, it's only by his grace through Christ Jesus that we have anything. It's really only because of what Christ has done. Uh, That because God was determining to save a people for himself out of the world, that he did not immediately bring his wrath and judgment on mankind when they sinned. And so that because of God's grace, through Jesus Christ, there is common grace to the whole world that everyone is provided for. Everyone has whatever they have because of God. And that God in his forbearance passed over former sins as to be in the present time the one who is just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ, right? That, that's Romans 3. And so we have to recognize that whatever we have, we only have it because God placed upon Christ in our place what we deserve. And so that all we have is by God's grace. And so, my friends, if we recognize that all we have comes to us from God by his grace, then we should recognize that it is only a fool's errand to seek out the provision itself instead of seeking out the provider. All that God gives us should cause us to turn and give him the glory for what we have. That everything we have should be an opportunity to recognize that it all comes from his hands and give him the thanks and give him the praise for it. That we would do as the, the psalmist calls us to do, to tell of all the wonderful things that he has done. That he'd be glorified in our lives for the great God and the great provider that he is. He is so good and so kind to us. As we recognize that everything we have comes from Him, we have to recognize that everything we have actually is His. It all belongs to Him. It is not truly ours. We are to be stewards of it, be faithful with what He has given us. But it is all His, and He gives to us generously with what is His. And so He gives, He provides us with everything to enjoy. Thinking of that, he's given to us to enjoy. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 to 19 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. And when we went over those verses going through Ecclesiastes, we discussed that we must understand the right place that money and possessions are to have in our lives, and so therefore have the right perspective of them. And by so doing, we can find the proper enjoyment in whatever we have, in whatever we may gain by our work in this brief time that we have on this earth. In order to do that, we must not live like our possessions are where we find our satisfaction. We can't trust in them. Uh, They are uncertain. To trust in them is, is to set ourselves up to be let down. And so to enjoy them as God intended us to, we must understand what we have, or whatever it is that we might hope to gain, can never actually satisfy us in this life. So we can't look to those things for our satisfaction. And so instead of looking to the provision to satisfy us, we must look to the provider to satisfy us. We must find our satisfaction where it was meant to be found, in God. As we trust in his sovereignty for whatever it is that we have in this life. So whether he is given much or he is given little, we trust him for it and find our satisfaction in the giver. And that will then direct our course of life and even direct how we see and use our possessions. It'll direct how we enjoy our possessions. Not holding our possessions in a tight fist, but in an open hand. And we see this as we see the instructions that Paul gives to Timothy on what to command the rich. That Timothy is to command them to do good. And the verb to do good there, according to the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and early church writings, that word to do good carries the idea of that which is beneficial to others. So, the rich are to do what benefits others. And really, we can look to other passages of Scripture and say, really, we're all to be doing what is beneficial to others. And then, if they actually want to be rich, uh, not just rich with temporary things in this temporary life, but to truly be rich, then Paul instructs them to be rich in good works, and so to be generous. Ready to share. You could say sharing freely. In order to share what we have with those in need. And this is a way that we, we hold our possessions in an open hand. Not just spending what we want and what we have to make ourselves happy, but giving what we have to cause others to rejoice in God. This is how we can truly enjoy what God has given us. But again, we can only do this when we're not trusting in wealth, not trusting in material things to satisfy us. Only when we have the right perspective, giving our possessions the right place in our lives, will we be free to share joyfully with those in need. And so therefore, honor God with what he has given. Recognizing it's all right from the beginning. It's all from him to begin with that all we have is because of his grace. And again, it's all for his glory. And so Paul desires that those who have would share what they have. And in sharing what they have, I don't think, as we look at the text, this only means money and and possessions, material things. But as we look at what Paul says here, as he calls them to do what is beneficial to others and calls them to be rich in good works, I want to argue that, that this means even beyond money and possessions, this, this means sharing of ourselves, of our, our time and our energy, giving of ourselves. When we view all that we have, our possessions and our abilities and our, our time, all that we have, when we view it with the right perspective, we can truly be rich, with what we have, and so however much money we have, or however much we wish we had, we have to understand that that we can't have the mindset but that that I, I would really only be satisfied if I just had if if I just had a little more, if I just had a, a little bigger house, if I just had a, a little newer car, if I just had if, if I just had a little more. Because if you remember when we went through Ecclesiastes, we discussed that no matter how much we have, when we are looking to be satisfied in stuff and money, no matter how much we have, it's always going to take just a little bit more. Just just a little more. And we're never really going to be satisfied. We need to find our satisfaction in God. And who he is and what he has done. And trusting in him, instead of storing up treasure on earth, where it's not going to last, we can store up treasure in heaven, as Jesus said. We'll be, as Paul says here in verse 19, storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. And so as we are supposed to be doing what benefits other in this life, we'll be doing what brings reward in eternity. As we are responsible with what God has given us here, we'll find more opportunity to serve and live for him all the more in eternity. When we live for him there like we've never been able to here. When sin is stripped away and we are pure before him, made pure. Living for him like we've never been able to. And look here, Paul calls the rich to store up a good foundation for the future, and the reason he tells them this is is what it says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Last week, we saw Paul tell Timothy to take hold of eternal life. And we discussed how that didn't mean that Timothy needed to get saved. That didn't mean Timothy didn't have eternal life. But that eternal life can, can refer to both the future life and the eternal day of glory, but it also can refer to the quality of life we live now, living in light of that eternal day. And so that when we have eternal life, when we have that security of being with Christ forever, we, we can begin to live that life now. And so, to here, by storing up for the future, by sharing what we have with those in need, we can truly now take hold of true life, which, which I would argue is synonymous with eternal life. When we live, not as if this temporary life is the end all, but we live truly living as we live with that eternal day in view. And so we recognize, why am I going to live for what I can never keep? Instead of living for what I will never lose. And though, too, this should show us, then, that living this way, and and living being generous and full of good works, is not a way of gaining eternal life, but instead it demonstrates that we have eternal life. We live this way in view of that day being secured for us. That place with God forever in glory that allows us to truly live here. And so again, what does Scripture call us to? What are the attitudes and the the viewpoints that we are to be conforming our lives to as we live in this world? What are the things we find in God's word that we are to obey and follow? Are our desires, are our attitudes, are our actions conforming to God's word? Are we in God's word to know his word? So that we will be a people growing in Christlikeness. And so too, we will be a church that God desires us to be. Which is the very next thing I think we see as then Paul turns his attention to Timothy, pleading with him with great emotion, as we see there in verse 20. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The phrase guard the deposit was a well-known phrase in the ancient world and was used of the great responsibility of being trusted with another person's valued possessions. The Greek word for guard is the idea of placing one's treasure in safekeeping. And so we have to ask then, what is this deposit that Paul was commanding Timothy to guard? Well, it must be in reference to all the truths of God's word, of the teaching of the Christian faith, of the doctrines of the apostles. He is to guard, to keep safe the truth of God's word. That which was being under attack there in Ephesus. As we've worked our way through this letter, we've seen that the false teachers mixed into their teaching myths based on the genealogies of the Old Testament, and they misused the law of God given through Moses. Now, we saw in chapter 4 that the false teachers had devoted themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, we also saw this teaching of asceticism, uh, this keeping oneself from different pleasures in order to make oneself holy or even to gain salvation. They did this by forbidding marriage and requiring abstinence from foods. And they really didn't believe what they were propagating. Now we saw there in chapter 4, verse 2, that Paul said that they were insincere and liars whose consciences were seared. And then too, in recent weeks, we saw Paul say that their motivation was greed. And so in the midst of all this that was infiltrating the church there in Ephesus, Timothy had to guard the truth. We saw that Timothy was left there in Ephesus in order that he would command certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And at the end of chapter 1, Paul charged Timothy with proclaiming and protecting the gospel. And this charge was in line with Timothy's calling to ministry. And he was to remember that. I'm to be doing this. This is what God has called me to do. And so it's what he had to do. And then we saw Paul tell Timothy to fight the good fight of the faith. And now Paul was telling Timothy to guard the deposit that was entrusted to him. And as this letter makes very clear, for Timothy to faithfully carry out his duties in all of this, He would have to faithfully proclaim the truth. And he would have to live upright, fleeing from all that entangled the false teachers and living a life that demonstrated that he was a man whose example could be followed instead of being one who was looked down upon because of his youth. Timothy had to stand on the truth of God's word where God's word was being attacked. And we who are God's people, has to stand on the truth of God's word where God's word is being attacked. Which is in the very world we live in as well. Yet too many have compromised for the sake of being winsome. To offer what people want to hear. To give self-help talks on felt needs. And instead of lifting God up before people's eyes through the proclamation of his word, That they might see who he is, and in light of who he is, see the truth of who they are. That the lost would recognize that before the holy God, they are sinners, and have no hope to stand before him and not face his wrath and judgment. And recognizing their sin before God, realizing they need a Savior, we lift up Christ the Savior, we proclaim who he is through his word, pleading that they might flee to him for refuge. Because only in Christ is there salvation from God's wrath. Only in Christ can our sin be truly dealt with, unless it's dealt with in ourselves for all eternity. Christ is the only hope for the sinner to be saved. And that for God's people, as God is lifted up before our eyes, that we ourselves then would grow in Christ's likeness, seeing him for who he is through his word. We have to understand that we are to come to Scripture primarily to know God. And in knowing Him, be in awe of Him. And then it's in this awe and the fear of the Lord that we gain wisdom in His Word to live in response to our circumstances in a God-honoring way. But too often we come with a man-centered view of Scripture, where we come primarily to see ourselves in the Scriptures. We too often read into the scriptures what's not there in order to speak to felt needs and be winsome and to, so that we can attract people. But instead, we must guard the deposit that was entrusted to us. We must fight the good fight of the faith and wage the good warfare. We must proclaim the truth of God's word. We must uphold God's word. Even teaching the things that are not winsome. Uh, winsomeness is a slippery slope. Uh, when we don't teach God's word and apply God's word as it is, uh, again, even applying those doctrines that are hard to accept, the doctrines of, uh, of unconditional election, the, uh, the doctrines uh, of the salvation through Christ alone, the exclusivity of the gospel. Uh, we're not willing to talk about sin and wrath and call people to repentance. All of these things, uh, to be winsome, will really not get us anywhere. It will not help anybody. And really, all it will do is open the door to false teaching and emotionalism. And so, by doing so, we do no one favors. By doing so, we give a world that does not want God and his truth, we give them what they want. and i think we can see this in the state of uh, the state that the 21st century american evangelicalism is in that proves that we do no one any favors i just came across an article yesterday uh, where one more christian contemporary music artist has has given to uh supporting the homosexual lifestyle and again an attempt to be whimsome and to to, to, to fit in. and But we do no one any favors that way. We don't really love people that way. The most loving thing someone has done for me is to point me to the scriptures, uh, to, to tell me about my sin and call me to repent. That was loving me. That was really caring for me. But sure, it came with a risk. I could be offended by that. I could kick back against that. And be upset with the person? And so, why do we do what we do? Is it really because we love others or because we love ourselves? Because we want others to like us and accept us? Are we truly going to tell even the hard truths because we really do care for people and we want them to know Jesus Christ? We want them to be saved. We need to speak the hard truths, we need to uphold God's word. And because of this, I'm absolutely convinced that if we are going to be a people growing in Christ-likeness, truly caring for others, if we are going to be the church that God has called us to be, then the regular diet of the church must be verse-by-verse teaching through whole books. Whole books of the Bible. That's how we guard the deposit entrusted to us because this way we preach God's word, not our hobby horses, uh, not what might be attractive. And then two, we avoid the temptation to avoid those harder texts that people don't like. And then when we preach God's word, verse by verse through whole books, we preach God's word as he gave it, because he gave it in whole books, whole letters. And these are just some of the reasons why we we go through whole books of the Bible this way. We must remain committed to the truth. We must remain committed to the truth in both proclaiming the truth and living out the truth. Demonstrating the truth and its power by the transformed life that the Word of God produces in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in proclaiming the truth, Timothy was to refuse to give in to the tactics of the false teachers. I'm going to argue so should we. Timothy was to avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. Uh, The word irreverent here, the Greek word can refer to something worthless, um, as in something that's kind of just thrown out, or, or something that's accessible to everyone and so it's it's vain it's it's uh it's it's the things that were not used in the pagan temples and so it's it's not sacred it's profane and so referring to this chatter this babble as being irreverent it's that which is godless And it likely refers to the things that were outside the truth that Timothy was to guard. He was also to avoid these contradictions or or opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. We have an abundance of what is falsely called knowledge in the church today. Whether it's through traditions that are unbiblical, or through marketing schemes to attract the world not to Christ but to gimmicks, for the sake of growth and success. God's church, and therefore those who lead God's church, must avoid these things. That which is called wisdom in the world, which to call such things wisdom is really a misnomer. Much of what we see in the church instead is self-help psychology with a Bible verse stamped on it anything that promotes what you do in your own accomplishments. Whether it's your salvation or your sanctification or ten steps to a better whatever. Whatever the felt need is of the week, We must be a people who are certain of the truths of God's word. Because it's in God's word that truth is found. We must be steeped in God's word. So convinced that we would rather die than to give an inch into godless babble and the opposing arguments of that which is falsely called knowledge. And why? Why is it so vital? Well, look what Paul says in verse 21. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. The some here would be the certain ones Paul charged Timothy to command not to teach any different Doctrine. In pursuit of their greed and winning people to themselves with their godless babble and opposing arguments, these teachers strayed from the truth and have become heretics. We must stand firm on God's word because we, one, love God. We want God to be glorified. We fight to proclaim the truth and live out the truth, contend for the truth because we want God's glory to spread. And in loving God and knowing God's love for us, we also love others. We don't want the false teachers to perish. And we don't want those who are deceived by them into their false teaching to perish. Uh, remember when we were going through 1st and 2nd Peter, we talked about those who are deceived by the false teachers. They have the same fate. And if we care, we desire God to be glorified and we don't want anyone to go to hell. We must proclaim the truth of God's word faithfully. Let's proclaim the gospel faithfully. You have to understand, we're not talking about tertiary things. We're not talking about um, petty differences and jealousies that there may be and all other kind of tomfoolery. No, no. We're talking about the things that make the difference between heaven and hell. The things that are eternal. Eternal. And so let us be a church that stands firm on God's word. Let us hold fast to the truth and guard the deposit that has been entrusted to us. Let us fight the good fight and sharing the gospel with those around us. And as we declare God's word, let us live out God's word, living transformed lives in the power of his word through the Spirit. And let us, therefore, be a people who are caring for genuine needs. Let us be a people that do what benefits others. Let us be rich in good works and generous with what God has given us. Let us be all that God has desired us to be in growing in Christ's likeness, And let us be as a church what God desires for his church as he is revealed in his word. Let us be conforming our lives to his truth more and more as we recognize that we don't belong to ourselves, we belong to him. And then finally, Paul closes his letter saying, grace be with you. Now, the Greek, unlike the English, unless like me, you've grown up in northeast Pennsylvania, has a plural you, And that's what Paul uses here. And so it would seem that, though this is a personal letter instructing Timothy, this was actually meant to be read to the entire church. And likely so, as Timothy carried out the things that Paul charged him with doing, the church would recognize that Timothy was leading with apostolic authority. And so what Timothy said was to be done was to be done. It was to be obeyed. Because it was coming from an apostle, one who spoke on behalf of Christ. And so as this apostle wrote, he wrote, carried along by the Holy Spirit, what is the very word of God? What is the authority for the church and is the authority for us as God's church as well? And so let us obey Let us in everything that we've read going through 1 Timothy conform our lives as God has revealed his desire for his church. Let us be that church that seeks to be everything God calls us to. As we hold up his, and guard the deposit that's been entrusted to us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of North Valley Baptist Church. For the complete sermon archive and more information about the church, please go to visit nvbc.com.